Dave and I were running through the order of service before the service started, he told me that um, on the bulletin, he had the longer part, but that my part is probably by minutes longer than his. So I don't know if I'd rather be offended by that or, you know. <laughs> but it's good to be with you all. I just want to, you know, extend my greetings from Liberty Church. We're grateful for you all. And uh, just wanted to pass on my greetings from our elders and our other leaders and just our sincerest gratitude for continuing to allow us to meet here and worship here. It's been a great blessing to us. And I hope so for you as well. But I can't speak for you. I can only speak for us. So let's... Uh, turn in our Bibles. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, and uh, that is on page 977 in the Pew Bibles. And I'm going to read from verses 1 through 16, and then we'll pray, and we'll hear what God has to say to us today. The Apostle Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ." until we all attain to the unity of this faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that today you would use my words, that you would use our ears, to hear, to speak and hear your gospel. And Holy Spirit, implant it in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. In the book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for the Hearts, Minds, and Democracy, the author outlines how Russian operatives use certain online tactics to sow division and distrust within American society leading up to the 2020 election. They aimed to exploit existing fractures, undermine trust in institutions, and blur the line between reality and fiction. And what they really focused on was two things, fostering disgust and portraying others as untrustworthy and inherently dangerous. 
So what this strategy did is it contributed to the growing sense of alienation in American society. Traditionally, if you think about traditional politics, it involved changing someone's mind or persuading them to join your side. But now, the way politics has shifted, and this is what the operatives are trying to tap into, was that our politics become about protecting one's own group and demonizing others. And I bring this up just to remind us that we live in a very divided society. And I think you can feel that on some level. We divide not only over who to vote for, but tons of things. Sexuality, immigration, race, environmental care, health care. And even years ago, I don't remember 2015, we couldn't decide together if a certain dress was blue and black or white and gold. Does anybody remember that? Yeah. Good. Five of you do. I got to say, that, that landed a little bit better with, uh, with Liberty. Uh, probably we're on social media too much. That's probably why. And if you're like a skeptic or you're non-Christian, you're here today, you might say, like, look, the church isn't much better. So let's not pick on America when the church is much better. And you'd be right on some, on some level. You might point to the church, different churches and denominations, how many there are, and how you see many Christians smear other Christians online and... Uh, they do so over things they disagree with each other on, and many of them seem very much unimportant. As the body of Christ, the church, we're called by Scripture, though, to be more united, not less. But unity, what we'll talk about today, is easier said than done, especially in a culture that's extremely divided. So we're in chapter 4 of Ephesians here today. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out theology. You know, he he praises God. He prays for the Ephesians. He has this this great exhortation about how we are saved by grace through faith. This is not something that you could earn, but it is a gift from God. And we hear all that. And then he moves in chapter three to talk about the centrality of the church, the the importance of it, uh, how it's vital and it needs to be vital to our lives. And then he moves in chapter four, where he talks about two standards for the church. The first one is unity, which we'll talk about today. But if you were to read the rest of the second half of chapter four and into chapter five, his other standard for the church is purity. But today we'll talk about the first of those, the standard of the church and the standard for the body being unity. The church, the body of Christ, is called to be different. We're called to show the world in many ways how to be the world. And the main part of our witness as the church to show a divided world how to be a united one by the unity that we show other Christians. So Jesus says something like this in John chapter 13 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? By what church you go to. No, he doesn't say that. (laughs) If you can quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, he doesn't say that. It says, if you have love for one another. Jesus says, this is how you people are going to know you're my disciples. If you love one another. 
Jesus sees unity is very important. John 17 spends the whole time praying for us to be united. And so when we talk about the church, capital C church, which is the, you know, as we say in the creed, the holy Christian church, it's all Christians of all times and places. That's what the church is, capital C. And the local church is a microcosm of, or should be a microcosm of God's design for his greater global universal church. But Paul uses the phrase body of Christ here in Ephesians 4 to refer to that. And so as the body of Christ, we need to see unity with other Christians as vital to our mission to the world. So I want to ask, answer three questions today. First, what does unity in the body of Christ accomplish? Secondly, what does unity in the body of Christ look like? And thirdly, what's required for unity within the body of Christ? So what does it accomplish? What does it look like? And what's required? So let's first talk about what does unity in the body of Christ accomplish? It accomplishes two things. First, unity in the body of Christ reflects the unity of God. And secondly, it makes Christ available to the world. So look at verse 1 again, Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you play video games, which not, I'm sure not all of us do, I no longer have time to, uh, but I grew up playing video games, and my kids played video games, and they like to joke around about these things called NPCs. If you know what NPCs are, they are non-player characters in a video game. So like, if you think about a movie, it's like an extra in a movie, it's like an extra in your video game. And a lot of times, they be, they're notorious because they become like this... A little bit of unintentional comedy in your gaming ex experience. So, particularly when they go rogue. So, sometimes they'll get stuck in this loop. They'll, like, walk into a wall and just, like, keep walking. Like, they'll just, they won't move anywhere. Or they'll, like, start walking backwards and fall into a pit, regenerate out of the pit, fall back into the pit, regenerate out of the pit, fall back into the pit. And so there's this thing called NPCs, and oftentimes they go rogue and get off track. And Paul's saying the same thing in Ephesians 4.1. He's saying, look, while I'm in prison, don't go rogue. Don't become like an NPC. If he was in our day today, he might use that analogy. He says, don't get off track. Instead, stay on track. Stay on track on the road God has called you to travel as his people. So jumping down to verse 4. And we'll come back to this two through three later. He says, unity is a major way we stay on track. There is one body. Listen to the amount of times he says one. If you have your own Bibles, not the pew Bibles, underline one every time he says it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. The unity of the body of Christ reflects the unity of God. Christians believe in the triune God. God in three persons, perfectly united, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says, there's one body of Christ. Why? Because there's one spirit. There's one hope belonging to our calling as Christians. One faith, one baptism. Why? 
Because there's one Lord, Christ. There's one Christian family embracing us all. Why? Because there's one Father who's over all and through all and in all. And so John Stott summarizes like this. It says, first, the one Father creates the one family. Secondly, the, Lord, the one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. And thirdly, the one Spirit creates the one body. Because of God's great love for us, no matter what you do, just like you can't destroy the unity of God, you ultimately can't destroy the unity of Christ's body, his church, which is really comforting, especially when you feel extreme, like things are extremely divided. Ultimately, the unity of God's church will continue on. But also, not only do we reflect the unity of God, we also, the body of, as the body of Christ, the one body of Christ, we make Christ available to the world. If you were to read your Bible and go back later, you would look at every time the New Testament refers to the body of Christ. It refers to it in three different ways. Jesus' historical body, which is his flesh and blood, right? His physical body. You have his sacramental body, which is the bread at communion, right? When you take the Lord's Supper, as the first Corinthians 11, 23 to 24 says. And lastly, what theologians call Christ's ecclesiastical body, Ecclesiastical just means the church, his church body. That's what Paul's talking about here. But there's this intriguing, mysterious way that all three bodies of Christ, all three body of Christ, work together. Christ makes himself available to his church in communion. Isn't that amazing? But Christ makes himself available to the world through his church. All three bodies of Christ, these forms, these modes, all work together. Somehow spiritually. And so when we evangelize, we disciple, we do mercy, we do outreach, that is his church making Christ available to the world. Or better to say is Christ is making himself available to the world through his church. So that's why it's important that we, the ecclesiastical body of Christ, make every effort to maintain unity. Otherwise, we'll destroy our witness and mission to make Christ available to the world. So that's what it accomplishes, but what does unity within the body of Christ look like? Pick up in verse 7. Paul says, But grace you have, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a coast of, sorry, coast, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now for time's sake, let's jump down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work and ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Unity involves the diversity of gifts. Any successful team thrives on diversity. Just like a symphony 
or a choir needs various voices or instruments to play different parts. A team benefits from a mix of talent and skills. It's like this harmonious blend of different strengths that create a winning combination. So whether it's on the court or on the field or on the stage, uniformity may sound nice in theory, but it's the diversity of gifts that truly makes a team shine. And the same is true for the body of Christ. The church, we're all called to be united, not uniform. God has gifted the church with diversity. Paul says when Christ ascended, he sent his He sent gifts to his body. And interestingly, that's in the form of leaders. Did you catch that? In verses 11 and 12? Each leader here has something to do with what we might call the ministry of teaching. But even still, their approaches are different. So God, Jesus gave the gifts of apostles to his church. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ who preached the gospel and set up the church. Prophets spoke on behalf of God to the church. Evangelists share the gospel with non-Christians. Shepherds or pastors, as we might call them, care for local congregations through the preaching of God's word and sacraments. And teachers do what? They teach. They teach the Bible. All might have a similar ministry, but even that is diverse in how they approach it and go about it. God has gifted the body of Christ with leaders with diverse gifting to enrich the whole body of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, though, the New Testament tells us, also gives Christ's body a diversity of spiritual gifts to all members of the body of Christ. So every Christian has a spiritual gift. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, you have a spiritual gift. You You may have a few. Doesn't mean you're always locked into those. Sometimes they might change. Who knows? Whatever the, what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But he's given each of us a spiritual gift or gifts to enrich the church. Some of us have wisdom, some knowledge, some faith. Uh, administration is a gift in the Bible. Teaching, mercy, and more. 1 Corinthians 12 says, though, like we, we read that a little bit earlier, that every part of Christ's body with our spiritual gifts is needed and valued. How you're gifted is different than how I'm gifted, or maybe different than how I'm gifted, but it's just as valued as I am. You are valued and needed as much as I am, as much as a Christian in South America is. All of our gifts working together enrich the body of Christ. And because of this, the body of Christ is also enriched by a diversity of traditions. Pentecostals and Anglicans enrich the body of Christ by their emphasis on beauty and worship in their own way. You walk into a Pentecostal church, you walk into an Anglican church, they're going to look different, but it's very much similar goal. Let's make worship really beautiful. Reformed Christians, I was waiting for an Amen. Enrich the body of Christ, how? By our reverence for God's word and desire for knowledge and clarity. Right, I was teasing my church. That's why my sermons on average are 37 minutes, not 10. Right, because we care about the preaching and teaching of God's word. 
Baptist Christians, they enrich the body of Christ by the urgency to evangelize and to baptize. So like leaving out one ingredient in your recipe, any missing gifts, either because we push them away or we hesitate to use them ourselves, will leave the body of Christ wanting. And it's through the diversity of gifts that God builds his church. And Paul gets at this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 3 when he talks about Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he refers to Apollos as a fellow worker in verse 9 of chapter 3. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. Diversity, they're doing different things, but together they're God's fellow workers. They're united. Diversity enriches the body of Christ in a way that uniformity simply can't. Every person in the body of Christ, you, me, everyone across the globe, every congregation or tradition in the body of Christ has a distinct function, is my brother and sister, is needed and valued and used by God for the flourishing of the whole body of Christ. And we're called to maintain unity despite those differences. Now, you might ask, but who are we required to have unity with? And I'm glad you asked because that's in my notes. We obviously can't condone everything anyone who claims to be Christian believes and teaches. We can't, there's some serious conflicts that we really can't unite over. So how do we handle those? Let me give you two ways I've found in my experience that are unhelpful, and I'll give you a helpful way. The first is what we might call theological minimalism. Since about the 1980s, with the influx of non-denominational churches, there's been kind of this running claim that goes something like this. You know what, doctrine, theology, that divides. So let's just not talk about it. So let's find the lowest common denominator to unite Christians. So Christian unity, and for a theological minimalist, boils down to like a basic sentence or two. Something like, well, as long as we all believe in Jesus, we're on the same team. And frankly, like, this is where I lean and I have to catch myself because there's a question that I, I continue would ask my friends who also think this way. I would say, yeah, but I know you want us, it's, if we all believe in Jesus, but none of us seems to want to answer, but what version of Jesus are we talking about? If someone claims to be a Christian, but, doesn't, but they believe in Jesus only as a good example or teacher and not God, I can't be united with that person. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus' equality and his divinity with the Father. So we have to be careful that our attempts to enrich the body of Christ don't backfire on us and actually poison it. Like if you took like salt water, not from like the Jersey Shore, but you took it from your tap and you mixed in some salt, it would look clear. You got some fresh water without the salt in it, and you did like, you know, kind of close your eyes and somebody mix them up. Right. You pull, look at both of them, they're both going to look the same. But if you pour the one with salt water into your plants or some of these beautiful flowers up here, what would happen? 
They would die. So we have to draw lines if we're going to protect the body of Christ from dying. So New Testament is filled with examples of drawing lines. 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, Paul actually names two teachers, and he says he handed them over to Satan. He clearly has drawn a line. He's saying they're on team Satan. We're on team Jesus. They're on team Satan. In Titus 1, 13-14, he tells Titus to rebuke false teachers. He says, do it publicly. Could you imagine me coming up here today and just like rebuking? Some of you would love that. I might like it a little bit too. That's a sermon for another day maybe. Right? Just like rebuking publicly false teachers. Anyway. We just put up some slides and just, you know. 1 Timothy 6.5, he calls out teachers who are preaching false doctrine for financial gain. If there's false doctrine, there must be true doctrine. So we cannot and should not seek unity with everyone who claims to be Christian because some are poisoning the body and that's going to end up destroying all of us. Instead, we have to call them to repentance and receive them when they do. But until that point, we need to keep our distance. The impulse of something like theological minimalism is a good thing on some level because Scripture does consistently push us to more unity, not less. But theological minimalism often reduces the gospel to being nice. Unity is about being nice. But unity that's about being nice isn't really unity at all because it's often nice to one group at the expense of the whole. It's not really nice to the people who are being poisoned. So 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, Paul names two teachers who are spreading, whose teaching is spreading like gangrene. Now, if you're not a medical professional, which I am not, you might have to Google what gangrene actually is. Now, gangrene, according to Google, is dead tissue caused by an infection or a lack of blood flow. Left untreated, it will spread to other tissues and organs. So in the ancient world, before antibiotics, when a patient need, had gangrene, they needed the infected part taken care of, what happened? They cut it off. They amputated. So that didn't spread through the whole body and kill the patient. False teaching can't be left untreated. It has to be cut off or it'll spread to the whole body. But we can err in the opposite direction in what I might call theological maximalism, which seeks to correct many of the impulses of theological minimalism but it makes the bar so high for unity that Christians only fellowship with other Christians in the same congregation, denomination, or tradition. It makes preferences and convictions core issues. So for instance, your view of the end times is of equal importance to Christ's divinity. The way you handle it, you can treat it like both are the same. And this makes unity impossible. Because Baptists will never have fellowship with Anglicans over disagreements on liturgy. And Pentecostals will never be able to evangelize side by, by side with many Presbyterians because one believes in speaking in tongues and one doesn't. The impulse is good on some level. We need standards to protect the church. But when we do theological maximalism, there's no diversity. Rather than amputating the parts that are infected, we amputate the whole body, or at least the healthy ones. So Martin Luther, the great church reformer, said softness and hardness 
are the two main faults from which all mistakes of pastors come. So both theological minimalism, softness, and maximalism, hardness, are detrimental to the unity of the body of Christ. And I would just ask you to consider this. And something I have to ask myself, which one am I more likely to embrace? Which one do I feel more drawn to? Unity is important. It's essential to Christ's mission and witness. And church, sorry, the church's mission and witness. And it makes Christ available to the world. So we can't set the bar so low that we allow false teaching to spread and kill. And we can't set it so high we destroy unity and diversity before it even starts. So I think a more helpful way to consider this would be what is called a theological triage. Southern Baptist, president, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary President Albert Moeller came up with that. And, and Gavin Ortland wrote a book called Fighting, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And he talks about theological triage. Triage is a system of prioritization, Ortland says. It's often used in medical contexts. For instance, if you are a doctor on the battlefield, you cannot treat every wounded soldier simultaneously, so you have to develop a process to determine which injuries you treat first. So how does this apply to unity? Well, he gives a framework to determine what essential doctrines there are that we must keep, and then what are the ones we can be more flexible on. So by this, we won't like permit false teaching, but we'll also be able to preserve unity with other Christians who might have different convictions and things like that from us. So he breaks up in four ranks. He calls them four doctrinal ranks. The first rank are, do- are doctrines that are essential to the gospel itself. We can't be flexible in this. If it's essential to the gospel itself, we can't be flexible in this. He says that things like in the Apostles' Creed, or justification by faith. It's like we just can't be flexible in those. They're vital for the gospel. It says second rank doctrines are urgent for the health and practice of the church, but they're doctrines that require us to form different congregations and denominations. But we can still maintain unity across them. Right? So, for instance, some traditions baptize people who only have, only baptize people who have a profession of faith. Some will baptize infants and adults who have a profession of faith. When we go to heaven, we might, we'll find out that we were all right and the Baptists were wrong. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> but right, so, so Baptists and Presbyterians, we would probably say we can't, maybe go to church together. I'm not sure if we could do that, but we kind of divide over modes of baptism, but we're still brothers and sisters. You see the difference? So he might, Gavin Orton would say, like, that might even be like things like speaking in tongues. Like, we might, we might be sensationists who think that speaking in tongues doesn't take place today, and, or you might be continuationists who think that it still does, but you can still be brothers and sisters in the Lord and do ministry side by side, pray for each other, all those kinds of things. Then he would say there's third-rank doctrines, which are important to Christian theology, but don't really justify separation or division. He would say things like your view of the millennium. You got a passage in Revelation 20 talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ. Is that literal? Is that figurative? You know, these discussions aren't really, are fun, 
but they aren't reasons to divide. And he said, fourth-rank doctrines are basically unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration, like what the color of your church carpet is, or if you spell liberty with an I at the end instead of a Y. You know, like, whatever that might be, it's not really important. Like, I, like we should never, as liberty with an I at the end, say we're not going to do ministry with people who have liberty with a Y at the end. That makes sense? Third Reformed, I don't know where the sec, first and second Reformed Presbyterian church is, but you guys, you know, just because they have different names, you shouldn't divide over that. Theological triage takes time, but it gives us standards for unity while holding on the diversity of gifts of the body of Christ. So then, all that to say, what's required of unity for unity in the body of Christ? How do we do this? Because it's a big ask, right? It's a big ask to maintain unity with some people we disagree with and some people who probably annoy us. Right, but there are still our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Just like your own family, there's people you love, but they annoy you. The same thing with the Christian family. Sometimes it happens too. So it's a big ask. So how do, we, how do we handle that? Look at verse two through three. With, Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The first way to do that is to be charitable. Be charitable. Charitable Christians don't divide over petty differences. They're humble, gentle, patient, loving, and are eager to maintain unity with other Christians. They're charitable because Christ was charitable towards them. Jesus in his self-sacrificial death on the cross for undeserving sinners like us showed us the greatest act of charitableness. Jesus was charitable, so you can be charitable with others. Because he was charitable to you, you can be charitable to your other brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's freed you to do that. If we were to come to terms with the fact that because of sin, we're all in the same boat of sin and death, and we all needed the same Savior, we can be charitable toward our brothers and sisters who received the same forgiveness that we did. So be charitable, but also grow in maturity, Paul says. The last part of our passage today, starting in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro from the wave, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The spiritually immature divide over petty things. The spiritually immature are also easily distracted. The spiritually immature are often like my dog, who is very easily distracted. My vet thinks he has ADHD. Very easily distracted. Uh, he's cute but I would never put him in charge of anything, right? It's the same type of thing. Paul's saying, like, you got to grow up. You got to stop fighting about petty things. You got to stop being easily distracted. 
spiritually immature Christians are distracted. They change their views on other Christians simply by a rumor they heard or an awkward interaction they had on Sunday. Like, you're entitled to a bad day, but no other Christian is. Right? Don't we? I act like that. Well, if they knew what was going on in my life, they wouldn't hold me to those standards, but I don't extend the same grace to them. Or maybe they watch a YouTube video about denomination that professes Christ, holds the first-ranked doctrines, but, you know, we can't, be, we can't fellowship with those guys because they believe in some third-ranked doctrine that, you know, we don't believe. Mature Christians, rather, are discerning. They don't have an insatiable thirst for controversy. They're able to distinguish between ranks and and theological triage. They hear out Christians with different convictions and preferences without compromising on the core teachings of Scripture. And mature Christians listen first, speak second, and are easily angered or irritated. Charitableness and spiritual maturity help maintain unity. If Jesus makes himself available to the world through his body, the church, imagine how powerful of a witness that would be if the world experienced a global church that's unified around these first-ranked doctrines but isn't petty about second, third, and fourth-ranked ones. Think how life-giving liberty or third reformed would be if everyone was seeking to be more charitable toward each other and to grow in maturity. What a powerful witness that would be to our divided society. That you can be divided out here, but in here, we're charitable. In here, we're going to be mature. Wow. So here's my challenge. Start at home with this. It's a big ask to be united with global Christians. Right? If you just take the you know, the broad, broad paint, you know, broad stroke of a paintbrush of, you know, like who's Christian in the world, there's like, you know, what, two billion of us or something like that. Right? That's gonna be that's a big ask. So start at home in your actual home with your family. I've observed this. I don't have any stats to back this up. I didn't read any psychology magazines or anything, but I just observed that divisive Christian parents produce divisive Christian children and grandchildren. For the sake of the body of Christ, for the future of the body of Christ, got to nip that in the bud. Be charitable towards other Christians and their beliefs in front of your kids and grandkids. You don't have to agree with everybody. That's called being nice, right? Just pretending that you agree with everybody all the time. My kids go to a Christian school that's a different tradition than with our church. And I got to be careful not to speak poorly of their interpretations because they're still my brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what I have to do, and I'm telling you, I'm writing this down because I'm preaching to myself less than I'm preaching to you, is I have to be charitable and instead I have to say, hey, son, hey, daughter, let's discern what you heard. 
And let's actually look, look at Scripture. Is that there? Here's how I read it. Here's how they read it. But by the way, they're still our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because we agree on the first rank doctrines. And not just parts of the Bible. Not just like, I can find a few verses here and there. But the whole Bible. And then start here in your home church. Are you eager to maintain unity with people here at third? Who might you need to have a loving conversation with? Do you need to ask forgiveness from someone? Or do you need to extend forgiveness to someone? Where do you need to put aside your own interests for the sake of congregational unity? I'm not speaking, I don't know everything that's going on. Pastor Casey and I meet once a month, but we're mostly just checking in with each other, make sure we're good. And, you know, he has some stuff from third, I have some stuff from Liberty, and we kind of talk, talk together. I don't know internal things going on. Just saying, for, the, your, for your witness, the same thing with Liberty, are we giving people the benefit of the doubt? Like, if, I, if I'm allowed to have a bad day, are, are they allowed to have a bad day? And let me put my own interests aside for the sake of the unity in our congregation. And then global church with other Christians. Just take some self-reflection maybe this week and say, you know, like, am I a theological minimalist or am I a theological maximalist? And help and then move towards theological triage. You can email me or, you know, if you want those doctrines, those ranks again, I can give them to you. Or just buy Gavin Ortland's book. He'll probably be more thankful that you did that anyway. And then re- repent. When you discover where any attitude in you, that in your heart, that may be divisive, repent of that. And then also I'll say this, and I appreciate the prayer for liberty today. This is exactly my final like, application point is, you know, pray for other churches. Pray for other Christians. Even the ones that you may not do ministry with or you may not, like, in your heart, you're like, they really kind of aggravate you, annoy you, but you know they're your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Pray for them. Not that they would be less annoying, but that they would flourish. Right? Don't we do that? We pray, you know. We pray, dear God, I pray for my brother that he'd be less annoying. Said like, hey, God, I pray for my brother. I pray that he would flourish and that you would work through him. And I'm talking about my own brother. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this. (laughs) Christian unity is important. Our witness is on the line. That's really what I'm trying to get at. Our unity with our Christian brothers and sisters is necessary. It's important. So let's work to be people who are eager to maintain unity, as Paul calls us here to do for the health of the body of Christ and for our witness to the world. Let me pray and then we will stand and sing. Father, we thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you for your church. We pray that we be people of unity and not division. Holy Spirit, help us to be charitable towards one another and help us continue to grow in maturity, spiritual maturity. Help us to grow into the image of Christ. And we thank you for our Third Reformed Church. We thank you for how you've blessed it over the years. And Lord, I pray a special blessing on them for unity and love, not just being nice, but actually being united in love and in the spirit and the bond of peace. Pray the same thing for our church and for our brothers and sisters in the area and the world. We pray all this in Christ's name.
Amen.